My name's Elena. And I'm Kappa. And I'm Jim. And this is Topic Lords, the only place on the internet you can hear topics discussed. <laughs> Elena. Yes? Would you like to uh, introduce yourself or do you have anything to plug? Oh, geez. I, I'm going to plug, I don't know, whale sharks. They're, they just got really cute, dumb faces. Yeah. <laughs> we'll put them in the show notes. <laughs> uh, and Kappa, uh, would you like to introduce yourself or do you have anything to plug? I suppose that someone who was looking for more of my nonsense would want to check out my Glowfic, which really no idea how to direct someone to it. We'll put we'll put it in the we'll put a link in the show notes. You ready for some topics? Reasonable. Kappa, your topic is ask me about my bizarre quasi fan fiction, which I believe you were just talking about. So go off. So I like writing things. Um, I like writing strange things. <laughs> um. <laughs> Elena is laughing because she knows what I'm talking about. <laughs> I've read a lot of your strange things. Uh, so, Lilite Satanist Narnia, because that's the one with the funniest name. <laughs> Once upon a time, some of my friends were doing like this uh, collaborative roleplay thing that is different from the collaborative roleplay thing we usually do. And for this purpose, I needed a character to go in this setting, and I needed to invent the religion that this character follows. And it was like an Earth-like setting, but with several changes, most of them, in fact, in which religions people follow. Um, and so I felt free to invent a new ver variety of Satanism, because why not? <laughs> and thus was Lilite Satanism born. And then I decided that, you know, to contribute some richness to the uh, cultural tapestry of this world, the Lilite Satanists would have their own version of, like, what Narnia is to the Christians and what the Golden Compass is to the atheists, like, you know, that genre of thing. So what's Aslan instead of a lion? Uh, I haven't gotten that far yet, you see, because originally this book was just sort of alluded to in a sort of metafictional context. Um, okay. But uh, then I started writing it because of who I am as a person. Um, <laughs> and I have like half of a first chapter and a lot of plot notes. Uh, nice. <laughs> I propose that the the Aslan equivalent be a goat. You know, I might just go for that. Um, <laughs> it, it depends, you know. Uh, I think the Aslan equivalent is going to be sort of a lot more hands-off um, mm. than, than original Aslan. Like, the, the format that I have so far is that this girl, 12 or 13, on her way home from school, finds a mm -hmm. mysterious key that can open any door, and when she opens a door mm. with it, the door leads to another world. Then she immediately tells her best friend all about this, and they like go off to have adventures. And the sort of the thematic note that I'm trying to hit here is they like get to this new world, and it's very sort of Narnia-like. Like there's this ancient conflict between good and evil, and these children are destined to arrive and like help everything and and sort of be the uh, monarchs. Yeah, but like. I want to sort of go into more depth on that and like how these actual 13 year olds would actually feel about suddenly being kings and queens of not Narnia and like the difficulties they have with fitting into the cultural context of their new world and the fact I that maybe- I honestly feel like it would just be really awkward to be suddenly made it the monarch of a place you've never been. Like on yeah. top of suddenly being made a monarch, which is like difficult enough. <laughs> like- <laughs> 
That's a lot of responsibility. Oh, it really is, yeah. And then on top of it, you have no idea how this country works. You've never been here before. And it, like, it doesn't even work in a normal Earth way. It works in a fantasy way. Yep. So like, their economics could be crazy. How yeah. do you set policy in that sort of environment? And also, you're 13 and have never taken an economics class in your life. Right. <laughs> Yeah, like, exactly, like, that sort of thing. And also, like, their culture is different from Earth culture, and there's, like, conflicts there where maybe they don't fit in perfectly because they grew up in a completely different planet with completely different, like, customs and norms and things. And, like, I definitely want to hit the note where it's, like, the conflict between good and evil is real, and the good side is, on some levels, good. And, like, there is sort of genuinely trying to, and genuinely, in, on some levels, succeeding at you know, making a a good world that is like a a, a better place for for people than than what their opponents could come up with, and like, you mm-hmm. know, there are legitimate threats uh, to this es- established order. Then it would be bad if those threats won. But at the same mm-hmm. time, this is Satanist Narnia, and so right. the sort of ultimate thesis is that actually you cannot like make a couple of thirteen year olds your uh, destined rulers and like have that work, and you cannot like. <laughs> sort of build a paradise for people against their will and like you can't make people fit your mold of what goodness should be Mm -hmm. um and so uh eventually like the girl with the key like has a sufficient number of cultural disagreements with the uh i called it the kingdom of dawn that she just runs off with her key and like sort of breaks up with her best friend because he is staying behind to continue being the king of the kingdom of dawn because he like doesn't have as much conflict with them and is sort of fitting in better and is like uh doesn't quite see what her problems are with the established order and so like they like go their separate ways and they're like pretty broken up about this uh conflict between them because they were such good friends before and now all of this epic nonsense uh, in in a very literal definition of the term has come between them and like uh, eventually of course I'm planning for her to like go off and have adventures and do things and like grow up a bit and figure out you know who she wants to be as a person and what her like goals and values are and what goodness means to her and then also probably meet Lilith um, and Mm -hmm. then you know eventually wend her way back to the kingdom of dawn and like meet her best friend who has now like been warned that she's like fallen off the path of goodness and and uh been corrupted by evil influences and so on and like they like try to sort of bridge this gap between them that has been made by all of this the the differences in their experiences of what it is to be a, in a portal fantasy you know um, great i have all these lovely ambitious plans and i haven't written a word of it in years but you know <laughs> 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 such is the way of being a writer but you have like a chapter you said yeah 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 so, okay, the, the Lilith Satanism. Yeah. You mentioned Lilith. Yes. So is it Satanism in the sense that there is a Satan? Like, is Satan involved or is it just Lilith? Um, Satan is involved. The, like, origins in the original context of Lilith Satanism is that I, like, looked into the uh, original, like, our world version of Satanism to see if it would be a good fit for this character whose religion I needed to world build. And it seemed like there were some good things there, but they were, like, sort of interspersed with these other weird things that I didn't think suited him at all. And so I, like, invented that a couple of people, you know, encountered Satanism as it existed in, like, the... I don't know, 1960s or whatever, whenever this would have been, and like decided to found their own splinter sect, which um, 
among other things, did away with some of the really weird sexism stuff and hence Lilith. And so like the, the idea being that like Satan and Lilith are like equals and like the reason why Lilith is because less sexism than original Satanism, but like still Satanism. I don't know much about Satanism. I know like the whole tenets of kind of like individualism about it. Uh, yeah. And again, I knew a lot more of this a year ago when I was like, sure. but um, approximately what it seems to be is, is the idea that like, yeah, like you said, individualism and that um, you as a person are like your own sort of, uh, you have ultimate authority over yourself and not mm-hmm. over anyone else. And no one should claim to have authority over you except insofar as you like permit them to. Right. Um, which I think is nice, you know. But, yeah, like an individual sovereignty kind of thing. Yeah, but uh, it went some weird places. Um, <laughs> and I can't remember what exactly the weird sexism stuff was, but there was enough weird sexism stuff that I had to invent an entire splinter sect to get rid of it, so. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, and then uh, the the founders of the splinter sect like went off and founded their splinter sect and then had a kid, and their kid grew up and wrote Little Light Satanist Narnia. Ah. Yeah. Man, I, I want to see more nostalgic fiction from people with really weird backgrounds. Ha! <laughs> <laughs> that is an excellent thing to want. <laughs> oh, just the idea of like, you have, like everybody has their own things that they were raised with that is like the things that remind them of their childhood that are very specific to them. And if you're like part of a more mainstream culture, then... You have a, there's a lot of other people who share that. You you'll have these touchstones that you can reference, and that other people will be like, ah, yes, I I remember how that is. And then like if you grow up in this weird splinter sect of an obscure religion, then you'll be like, ah, yes, the the comforting things that I had in my childhood. Everybody will be like, what? I was I was playing um, Yakuza Zero, and that game is a very like it's a tribute to economic boom Japan in the late eighties, mm-hmm. and specifically like the. Um, I forget what you call it, but like the recreation district where like you go there and there's a bunch of like, you know, arcades and, and, and like bowling alleys and things like that. And you get these lovingly like detailed scenes, like you have a meeting with your mafia boss, mafia equivalent boss. I guess there would be a Yakuza boss. Yeah. <laughs> and there's a terminal, like a eighties ass computer terminal in their <laughs> room and an overflowing ashtray of like, this person has just been like working like for weeks to fill this ashtray next to their computer terminal and never get it <laughs> emptied. And like you could tell these are people who are very nostalgic for 80s era Japan. And then I tried playing another Yakuza game like, oh, yeah, I want to I want to experience that sort of thing again. And it was just 80s Japan again. <laughs> and I was like, oh, right. Th- these developers still just grew up in 80s era Japan. Era Japan. Yeah. <laughs> and what I really want is like for the game developers who grew up in like Renaissance Italy, you know, yeah. please bring, bring me your Renaissance Italy nostalgia. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Bring me your like, I don't know, 1600s Polynesia nostalgia. Yes, please. Yeah, totally. I don't know anything about what was nostalgic about that period, but I'm <laughs> sure there was stuff. Maybe you eat taro paste as a child. I don't know. Yeah. But I bet it's great. 
there's a similar thing where this is this is secondhand, but um, mm-hmm. I, I feel like you get a similar thing where like if someone's just obsessed with, for example, um, there's a game Shenzhen IO, which is about like you oh, yeah. you are a programmer who has moved to Shenzhen, China, and you're working for an engineering firm, and like mm-hmm. it's very it's it's very like steeped in the culture of of China and specifically engineering China. Um, yeah, that stuff is all secondhand. I think a lot of it was derived from like the blog posts of Bunny Huang. Mm, yeah, I know. Well, I guess I don't know personally Bunny, but I've met Bunny. Right, right. And it's the same sort of thing where like I think these developers were just like, yeah, I, uh, I'm super interested in this. I'll read a bunch about it, and then mm-hmm. it's it's close enough to having grown up with it that you can then recreate, you can create this experience, which is like reminiscent of that kind of, like it feels authentic, even though I'm pretty sure it isn't. If it's like really dear to someone's heart and they know a lot about it, I feel like that they might still be close enough to it to at least capture the the main points. Yeah, that seems right. Are you ready for another topic? Sure. Sounds like it. Uh, Lenny, your topic is, did you see that video where the Super Monkey Ball superfan went on a quest to find the narrator's voice actor? I did not see that video. I did, and it was amazing. Tell me tell me about the video. Okay, so this is also like another childhood nostalgia thing. But So this, this guy is, is one of the people who played Super Monkey Ball when he was a kid, as some of us have. And he really loved it. He's still a big fan. He's like one of the speedrunners who works on that game or something like that or Uh, enjoys consuming that media. I'm not entirely sure how involved he is, but there is apparently in the super monkey ball fan community, this mystery because the the narrator, the one who's like goal and whatnot, uh, fallout. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Uh, that guy is not credited. Oh, like if you look through the credits, you, you see like all of the other credits for everything else in the game. And there's nobody is credited for that voice. Right, And so it was just this mystery for a long time about who this guy could be. So this guy made this whole YouTube video about his quest to figure out who that narrator is. And he goes to Japan about it. He like, (laughs) he is like looking up, there's like apparently a fairly small, like a short list of like native English speaking voice actors living in Japan in the appropriate era. So it could only have been like one of like, you know, five or 10 guys. And so he just goes to Japan and is like calling them all up. Like, Hey, do you know who did that game? And they're like, wait, was that that one guy? And he like he goes on this like little like I don't know it's like one of those it's like a, the quests from RPGs where like each oh, person sends you on the next leg of the quest <laughs> yeah 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 and eventually he finds the guy and he talks to the guy and the, so like apparently the way that voice acting for video games worked in that era of Japan was like you would go into the studio you would know basically nothing about the game you would just get a list of lines you'd say them over the course of a few hours you'd leave and they were just doing tons of these things. So he like kind of remembered the project. He's like, oh yeah, yeah, I think I could repeat that. Uh, yeah, okay. But he didn't like remember a lot. Right. But they like chatted about it. And this, so this guy, like he publishes the video to his YouTube channel and he and the voice actor, like, I guess are still in contact. There's like a whole thing now. Are they married? I, I don't think they're that close. Okay. But they were talking about like, how the the current uh, person who runs Sega or something apparently like was also a big Super Monkey Ball fan. Uh-huh. And so now there's like, he published another video recently about how maybe there is another like true to the originals Super Monkey Ball game in the works. Uh-huh. And I am so excited about this prospect. <laughs> <laughs> 
Have you played? Have you played the sequels? I played one, like one and two, and I didn't play any of the apparently like fourteen utterly miserable games since then. <laughs> I didn't even like two. I have personally never monkeyed a ball in my life, but um, oh, you should monkey some balls. <laughs> Have you played that game where you like turn dials on the edge of a board and it tilts a board where a marble falls into a hole? Uh, maybe. Okay, I guess I didn't describe it very well. <laughs> uh, no, I I, th- I think I know what you're talking about, and like I I am not entirely sure whether I have ever done one of those, but I have like I am familiar with the concept, yes, and the the connection between it and this <laughs> uh, bizarre game. But no, I uh, when I saw the uh, the vi- the original video where he like went to Japan looking for the guy, I think my favorite part was the part where. Um, he like, as he was going, circling around on his quest, being passed from voice actor to voice actor, each of them not totally sure where the, where they uh, uh, heard this voice before. One of them said, oh, you know, I think maybe it was so-and-so. And the other guy said, oh, you know, maybe it was so-and-so. And they had, they, they each said a different name. And it turned yeah. out that these were the first and last name, respectively, of the actual guy. His first name and his last name are both... They both sound like first names. So one guy's, I forget the name exactly, but it's like, one guy's like, oh, is that David? Another guy's like, oh, is that Matt? But the guy's name is David Matt. Yeah. Uh, it's Brian Wait. something, I think. Like Brian... Oh, so this was actually an American. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I just assumed it was like the the Japanese guy they could find that had the best American accent. No, they got an actual native English speaking dude, like one of the like five or 10 that there was in Japan at the time. Who, right. And so like th- these guys voiced everything that there was in English. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Regarding like going into the recording booth with no context, like apparently Mm -hmm. it's, it's still that bad in many cases. I remember reading, um, I read just recently that when they were recording all the voice acting for Oblivion, Uh they didn't have a good way to order all the lines in the script because there's all these branching paths. Oh my God. So they just delivered the lines to the actors in alphabetical order. Oh my god. Oh no. So you don't even know which lines follow which other lines. Right. Oh man. So you could not make an emotional arc that made any sense over the course of a paragraph. No, absolutely not. Oh my god. But yeah, that's a so classic problem. So does it sound ridiculous? I haven't actually played it. I haven't either. Um, okay. I'm just imagining it's all like, do you remember that moment in uh, Sam and Max Hit the Road mm-hmm. where there was a, there was a joke that Max is responding to where he emphasizes uh I haven't even figured out where I am, Sam. When it's uh-huh. when he should be emphasizing the I. Right. I haven't figured out where I am, Sam. And like the joke just falls flat because the uh, actor didn't understand what he was responding to. Right. Like if you just see that line without of context. You're like, I guess Am and Sam is the funny part here. Right. So I'll, I'll make those sound, I'll emphasize that rhyme. Right, right. But he's trying to do a contrastive stress thing with I versus somebody else. Right, right. And and this is all like in part because the actors aren't reacting to each other. They're just like reading lines out of context. Um, in the CD version of Loom, mm-hmm. that was one of the first uh, talky video games. Yeah. And it had a bunch of problems like... For example, they used um, CD tracks to play all the audio responses so they could only have 99 things they could play. I remember hearing that the script for the the voice version had to be pretty pared down. I guess that's why. Right. Uh, But on the other hand, like 
entire scenes were a single audio track. And so they would actually huh. get the actors in the room together and cool. it would actually make sense. Yeah. Oh, man. Loom was a good game. Yeah. I'm nostalgic for Loom now. Loom's good. Ask me about Loom. Tell, tell us about Loom. <laughs> I mean, okay, yeah. Loom is this, this uh, point-and-click adventure game where you play Bobbin Threadbare. What a name. Right? The last of the Guild of Weavers. The cosmology of the, the Loom setting is fantastic, and I'm so sad that the trilogy was never completed, because like the setup of the first one is just like, wh- where's this going to go? And then nowhere. Yeah. But So Bobbin Threadbare is coming of age, and all of the, the elder weavers in the, the Guild of, of Weavers are like whispering and muttering about themselves because there's this prophecy about him and about how the third shadow is nigh. And they don't like want to allow him to come into the weaver magic that the, the weavers have. And he has like one advocate and he witnesses this argument. Like a bunch of magic shit goes down. All the adults in the weaving guild get turned into swans and fly away. Uh, <laughs> and uh, that's surprising. Right. Um, he has to go on. So the, the entire side tra- track, by the way, is Swan Lake, which is great. Oh, and that's another thing that was like a real bummer about the the talk the CD version of Loom is that they really should have just used that CD audio and put a real orchestra playing Swan Lake on oh, the on the soundtrack. That would have been so good. Oh man! But so he, then he goes on this this quest across the sea to where he meets the various other guilds, like the Guild of Glassblowers and the Guild of Shepherds and the Guild of Blacksmiths. We were all like each of them has their own way of doing magic in addition to being a, like a guild of their craft and their, their own societies. I don't know. The economics of this world are curious, <laughs> but like, so he goes on this whole grand adventure and over the course of the adventure, he learns how to use the weaver magic that he was never taught. And the way that it works is through music. This is like a unique mechanic that other point and click adventure games do not have where instead of having specific verbs that you can click on, like you click on look and then you click on the thing you want to look at, right? Instead, you cast spells at those things. And the way you cast spells is by picking a sequence of notes. And the way that you learn spells is by hearing those sequences of notes in the world. So, for example, you learn the open spell by listening to a seagull who is pecking at a clam and wants to open the clam. And you hear the the, no- the notes that its beak makes as it strikes the, the clam and you, you listen to that within your special magical weaver ears and learn the notes. The spells are all four notes long and you play those notes in, in that order and you cast the spell. The way that you do antonyms is by playing the song backwards. So if you want to close something, you play open backwards. Nice. And the, the songs that were, it's a verb that doesn't really have an antonym, those ones are palindromes. It's just so clever in every little place. And as a player, the way that this works is each note has a different color of the rainbow. So like this note scale, the chromatic scale is literally chromatic. It's got colors. It's rainbow. Uh, Also, they're arranged on your distaff, which is like this special magic staff that you have that is weaving themed. And so you you can click different notes at, at different heights of the distaff and they glow in different colors. And at different difficulty levels of the game, like you can pick different difficulty levels when you start playing, you start having to play the game more and more by ear. So at the simplest version, you know, it's got a a literal musical staff for you. It'll tell you this note is an F and it's blue and it's at the bottom of the staff. And when you see 
music happening in the world and hear it happening in the world, it will reflect on that part of your staff and that part of your staff will glow and you'll be like, okay, I did not have to do any music about this. I will click that part of my staff to have that effect. But at the highest difficulty level, you just have to listen. (laughs) So I don't play on the highest difficulty level because I don't have perfect pitch, but I think it's really cool that they had a game where you could do that. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, so it it goes on this whole quest where, like, there's this uh, horrible necromancer from the Guild of Clerics who's trying to summon this demon from beyond time or something. Chaos. And this is a bad idea. And the thing he summons ends up literally tearing apart the fabric of reality. And fabric in a very literal sense. Remember that they are the Guild of Weavers. Right. Like, there are holes torn in reality with, like, dangling threads And you can weave and unweave them when you get good enough spells. I don't know. I just, I find this game really delightful. The writing is great. The soundtrack is beautiful, obviously. And the world building is just really fascinating. Yeah, so you go around and you experience this delightful world. And it was originally intended to be the first of a trilogy. And so they set it up with, like, you and the other weavers have escaped reality, literally. And reality is just screwed. Like, everybody is dead, you have, you made friends and they are all horrifically murdered. Wow. And their ghosts are angry at you. Oh. And it's just like this whole terrible situation that you just barely managed to escape by the skin of your teeth. And it's clearly setting up for like, and then you'll have a triumphant return later on. But because there's no later games, it literally, the story ends with, and then you escaped the universe, which was, you know, on its last legs and everybody died. And you are the, the last survivors of this universe, the end. <laughs> so... You might be uh, might be interested to know that there are fan games that Ooh. that follow it up. I doubt that they are as uh, deftly constructed as this one was, though. Of course, I'm still curious, though. I, I would love to consume more more things set in that setting. Right. Uh, are we ready for another topic? Sure. So my topic is a ZZT community member recreated the lost ZZT source code from scratch. And it compiles to a byte identical executable. And this was super interesting to me in part because um, it seems like a feat to yeah, be able to... Yeah, I was just going to say, is that just like... That, that sounds to me extraordinarily technically impressive. Yes. Not like just that it functions the same, but that it is byte identical. Right. Yeah, wow. Right, right. And they actually just... This happened like two months ago, three months ago, something like that. Wow, okay. And uh, they just, a couple of days ago... Uh, made a blog post how it was done and it was just like yeah i did it how you would expect you know i I took a decompiler and i pointed it at the game and i typed in pascal until it basically matched (laughs) and then um like there was the process of like reordering functions until like they were in the right places and then just like comparing the executables until like oh yes i need to change this one i need to change the if and the else of this construct as i need to swap them oh my god but like, how, so how do you know that you're approaching being byte identical? Like, how do you know that you're only a few bytes different? Well, well he talked about like loading uh, both executables up in a um, in a decompiler mm-hmm. and comparing their output by um, rapidly switching between the windows and just looking for differences on the screen. Oh my god! <laughs> like not even doing like a diff on it, just like. Well, you use diffs too, but. Okay. Wow. And so, like, the thing that, that really gets me about this is, like, replicating intended functionality is one thing. 
But if there are any bugs in ZZT, and I don't know, like I assume there are, yeah. but you have to recreate the way somebody screwed up. Yeah. Like, it's not even just like, okay, the logic of this is that, you know, like this thing gets you know, increment this value under these conditions. You have to be like, okay, th- something about this went wrong. It, I, it's not just the way you'd expect it to be. Let me just throw random broken stuff at it until it's right. Well, no, you don't. You don't throw random broken stuff at it. You look at the the decompiled decompiled code, okay, uh, and see what that does. Uh, and there's a disadvantage here in that the decompiler decompiles to C, and ZZT was written in Pascal. But one huge advantage is that uh, Turbo Pascal, which was what this game was written in, was a very simple compiler. Like the turbo in the name refers to compilation speed. You really can look at look at the the output code and kind of be able to just reconstruct what the Pascal would have been, just because okay. this the compilation process is so straightforward. Like modern compilers will do go to ridiculous lengths to to make the code run faster, and they'll rearrange the code and do things that that separate it fairly considerably from the original source. But mm-hmm. uh, Turbo Pascal output is actually pretty one to one. Okay, well that that would make so that, the that helps process a lot. somewhat easier. Yeah, like I don't know a lot about uh, decompiling, so I don't right. I don't have an, a, a strong idea of like what sort of output you get from a decompiler. But yeah, it, it sounds like it's it's not too far off from what you're looking for in this case, at least. Right. Another thing that's interesting is that uh, they used um, the decompiler that was released by the NSA, apparently <laughs> used internally for decades. So NSA could have cracked ZZT ages ago. <laughs> and surprisingly, it still works on old DOS programs, like real mode DOS programs. Huh. So, okay, I, I'm i curious. See, the, the ZZT source code was lost. Is it lost like in an interesting way? Like what? who made ZZT under what conditions? So it was Tim Sweeney uh-huh. who um, later, it was the same company. He later wrote the Unreal Engine. Yeah. Which is an interesting parallel, like two programs that were like sold as like, here's a set of levels for that they make up a video game, but really the part people are interested in is the level editor. Uh-huh. But he lost it in that he just couldn't find the discs. Oh, no. <laughs> By the time people were asking him for the source code, mm-hmm. he had just moved on and was doing other stuff with his life. Right. Yeah. And so... He was like, yeah, I, w- I would give it to you if I had it, but I don't know where it is. Oh, no. That's tragic. So we, we needed uh, to go to these extreme lengths of... And it's really only possible because it was it was a 90K executable, which isn't that much in the grand scheme of things, like, to to um, to recreate. Yeah, that, that sounds humanly possible. I'm, like, trying to imagine if you were going to reconstruct the source code for... A more modern game, and I feel like it would just be more man hours than a man has. <laughs> right. Uh, I forget, Elena. Were you around for Glitch? Jog my memory. So it was this uh, Flash game back when Flash was a thing, and it was yeah. like kind of an MMO, and it had this like quirky aesthetic, and it was really cute and really like uh, the the sort of thing that accumulates a sort of very uh, deeply invested community. Hmm. Um, I think I d- I missed Glitch. Well, it was a really good game, and now it is dead because Flash is dead. And like they, they, I think, saw the death of Flash coming, and they abandoned the project. And they like released 
um, a whole bunch of like source code and the entire like the the entire flash executable file for the game part of the game, but like mm-hmm. there was still sort of server side stuff because it was an MMO, um, right. and they couldn't release some of that. I think, but they like they let out basically everything they could: uh, source code, art assets, uh, and on and on and on. And like uh, at first, the community for the game was like super excited about you know, coming together to do a project to, like, recreate this uh, game. But um, I think, so, we kind of knew Flash was dying, but we did not, like, know the extent or the depth to which Flash was dying. (laughs) And people were not very enthusiastic about trying to port this entire game over to a completely different, like, platform because... Yeah. Yeah, Jim, I feel like you can probably speak to that pain. I, I do have things to say about this, but I want to see where this is going first. Okay. Uh, and so, like, I was, I was like, in on the ground floor of the original uh, attempts to revive Glitch. There were, like, I don't know, three or four projects that sprung up in the wake of the, the game's demise. And I was, like, in there with one of them. And we tried and tried and tried. And we, like, got a lot of stuff done. But uh, we weren't moving away from Flash. And that proved to be a bad idea. Oh, yeah. no. Um, and I've sort of drifted away from the project at this point because, like, I couldn't... They weren't really going anywhere because of this. There just doesn't exist the, like, amount of human effort necessary to bring the game to a, a platform other than Flash, and we can't use Flash because Flash is dead, so... Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's frustrating. And it was such a good game, too. Yeah, so I I recently um, released a game that was a port of a Flash game to Unity. I'll I'll see if I can see if I can elide over the more boring details. But I used um, I used a tool called AS3HX to convert the AS3 ActionScript three source code to hex source code. And that tool, I think, is actually like a search and replace thing. Like it does like a search and replace with regular expressions as opposed mm-hmm. to being a transpiler because it made mistakes like putting code on the wrong side of a brace. Oh. It introduced a bunch of compiler errors. Um, and probably some of those glitches are still in the game, uh, honestly. <laughs> like, but and then, the, and then it was a process of like, okay, I, I tried to run hacks through a hex to C sharp compiler. Yeah. I went and fixed all the compiler errors. Then I went and stubbed out all the IO code with the the equivalent of linker errors because Uh all the flashes IO stuff doesn't exist in unity. Uh, So I stubbed that out with like do nothing code until it built. Uh And that took like a week of work. And that was just like sitting there building Seeing like it would always the error recovery in this compiler is not great, so there was always about thirty errors. Oh god! Mm. And so like I'd fix all those errors, and there'd be another thirty errors, and so I just had no idea how close I was to being finished. Oh man, that sounds like grueling. <laughs> it, it was, it it, but I knew it was. I knew I was making progress. I just didn't <laughs> know how much. And then it was a matter of rewriting all the I/O code, and uh-huh. this involved things like you know where Flash. In Flash, you can, because it's a vector renderer, software renderer, you can do mm-hmm. things like draw a rounded rectangle with a drop shadow, and that's right. like six lines of code. Um, I had to like build out uh, a set of sprites to do that sort of thing in, in Unity. Um, I had to render all the, oh, there was some vector art in the game, and I rendered that out on high resolution and imported that into Unity. Uh-huh. I went back to Flickr 
where I had gotten a bunch of background art and like mm-hmm. photos of bugs having sex. Right. <laughs> it's part of the game. Uh, Clearly I should play this game. You should. <laughs> you know, you might enjoy it. It's free on Steam right now. And I went back to get the original, like whatever the best resolution I could get from there and re-import that. And, uh, you know, it was just in the, in the whole, the whole process took about three months to get it up and running. And that was for a game that was about, I don't know, like 10,000 lines of code. Yeah. Yeah. Glitches on the order of a million. Yeah. <laughs> like, I understand why that process wouldn't really work for a lot of projects. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. I, I don't envy that project. Yeah. That, that does not sound like fun coding to me. Yeah. <laughs> But I wanted to save Frog Fractions from Oblivion. You know, I didn't actually know that Flash would be going away right after I shipped this game. Yeah, well timed. <laughs> yeah, it's like like I got like four months left or something like that. But then, and then I also wanted to do the thing where I added a bunch of additional secret stuff to the game. Right. And I wanted to do it like my when I initially started this project, I was seriously considering the idea of like, should I just break out the old action script compiler and just add a bunch of stuff and while while it remains a flash game? Oh man. And that would have I think have been pretty disappointing. Like I could have done the same basic thing I ended up with, but uh-huh. the when I go back to Flash the, the frog fractions now it does it has not aged well like it's mm. it's kind of amazing to me that people put up with like it, it was it's locked at 640 by 480 so if you scale it up it's just like enormous pixels on your screen <laughs> <laughs> and so like ma- making everything be like 4k 4k art resolution art is a huge improvement yeah i remember when you were like first starting on this endeavor and you were trying to like get high def versions of your your old assets yeah. And like you had like I think you had to get some art redone or something. I definitely uh did get go back to some of the old artists and ask them to to paint over in higher resolution mm. art, yeah. Man. <laughs> <laughs> like there was a lot of the, the art of that game was very uh diverse. So there was some yes. flash vector art, there was some raster art, there was some photo bashed st- backgrounds. And then there was some like photos that had been like significantly doctored mm-hmm. and luckily those ones were doctored at a high resolution so oh, i didn't okay. need to like redo just so i didn't have to ask the artist to redo all that oh, man. Like, I, remember, I remember shannon talking about like you know in i think she was she was still in law school at that point and like in class uh-huh. like changing all the little stars on the american flag to bugs right you know just bug 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 <laughs> yeah and and her classmates are like, what the heck are you doing? <laughs> Changing all the stars on the American flags to bugs. What did it look like? Yeah. <laughs> I remember at the, also when you were embarking on this project, you sounded pretty down on Unity. And I'm wondering if your opinion is the same. I was definitely considering doing something else. Like I, I have, uh, I still have my frustrations with Unity, but I have successfully avoided doing the th- most of the things that I don't like about Unity in the over the past couple of years. Good, um, good job. The the frustration, the pain points are not like they're not salient. Uh the the frustrations that I have with it right now are that like for example, um there are bug reports where the game is crashing on startup. Right. And it's because it's basically because of a bad interaction with someone's video driver. 
Is that what was going on in France? No, the France thing is separate. I'll talk about that next. Okay. Uh, uh, the video driver thing is just like, it's this, I'm actually not sure of the details, but it's just like, if I were writing my own engine, I would just never have dealt with that. Like, and Unity is trying to be a... Um, a modern, you know, state of the art 3D engine. So it's it has to touch all these little aspects of your video card. And if I this game basically just renders triangles uh, with <laughs> <laughs> texture maps on them, you know, it's a it's mostly a 2D game. So yeah, yeah. like I just wouldn't I don't need something to be so it is occasionally fewer D's than two. Yeah. Uh the France thing yeah. Uh, Frog Fractions was crashing, but only in France. Right. Only for users in France. Okay. The reason for that was that I was um, reading numbers out of a JSON file, basically. Yeah. And the numbers had decimal points. And I was uh, calling uh, the, the uh, C-sharp library uh-huh. uh, to parse floating point numbers. Yeah. And the operating system was like asking the... Or the, the the API was asking the operating system, what are the format of floating point numbers in your region? Mm-hmm. Oh. And in France, they use the comma yeah. as a, yeah, 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 yeah. the decimal point. <laughs> Goddamn formatting. And so it was like, this is not a valid floating point number and breaking. Yeah. I ran into a similar thing with CSS recently. Yeah. In the, the dev environment, uh, it worked fine. Uh, you know, we were just like change opacity on hover. And it looked gorgeous. And then um, my collaborator deployed it and I went to go test it. And I was like, what is happening? Uh-huh. <laughs> when, you, when you hover, the thing just disappears. And it turned out that for some reason, this is like a, a bug in React. Uh, opacity in CSS you can set with either percentages or um, like just a decimal. Mm. Yeah. And... Uh, in React, you can only do the decimal. It doesn't know about the percentages. So if you have a percentage number, it will just round it to the closest value between zero and one. Right. Which is pretty much always going to be one because most percents are above one. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> so. that, that's classic. That's like a, just a that, – that reminds you very much of like making web pages in the late 90s. Yeah. Where like – one browser will read your your value as intended, and the other one will like assume you have mean an entirely different set of units. Oh god! Yeah. So recently, I I didn't read this article. I just saw the headline, so I don't know anything about it. But apparently, there were some some genes in like the human genome uh-huh. that if you put them in Excel, it reads them as dates. Yeah, I saw that. And so the scientists had to rename the genes. Oh, oh yeah, man. we're, we're going to upend all of science instead of adding a feature to Excel to. To not auto-format. Because fixing Excel's date formatting is way too hard. So we're just going to rename our genes. Yeah. Oh, man. (laughs) Good, yes. I was also thinking about how um, my previous project, Frog Fractions 2... So Frog Frog Fractions 2, I I was coming out of a, a place where I had just promised people that I would make a game that was even weirder and funnier than Frog Fractions was. Uh Uh, And so I was like coming to it from the goal of like, I need to make something that is completely outrageous and every decision that I was making is like as as outrageous as possible. Uh Yeah. Um, And so with that idea in mind, if I had that bug in Frog Fractions 2, Mm -hmm. people wouldn't have been sure it was a bug. 
<laughs> oh yeah, of course it's supposed to crash in France. People would have just been like, oh yeah, it's uh, it for crashes in France. I wonder if that's a clue. <laughs> oh man, yeah, I bet the bugs hate France. Yeah. So there's got to be some sort of connection there. Whereas uh, the remaster of Frog Fractions, like first of all, people already know what it's supposed to be like. Yes, <laughs> because they're already, they already they played the original, uh, but then like uh, the the uh, additional story that I put in there, um, uh-huh. spoilers for Frog Fractions Game of the Decade <laughs> Edition, um, the additional story I put in there is a lot more like sensible. It's a lot more of a story <laughs> than yeah, and so like people are more likely to be like, hmm, yes, it probably was not intended that it crashed for people in France. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not trying to tie that into the, the plot line. Spoilers, this game has a story. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you wouldn't expect it from the original. <laughs> oh, man, but you haven't played it, so I don't know if I should tell you how you shouldn't expect a story. Uh, well, I'm somewhat likely to play it in the nearish future, so perhaps <laughs> don't. <laughs> all, right. all right. I will experience it for myself. Okay. <laughs> story and all. I, I sure hope so. Um, <laughs> If you do, please stream it on Twitch because I would love to see that that play. Oh man, oh man, I I might very well do that. I might very well do that. Awesome. Ready for another topic? Yeah, sure. So this is a write-in. Josh asks, "Koi koi culture." I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right. I could read the Wikipedia page out loud. That's probably what I would do. So, I'll just, just, how about you do that? Koi koi culture or guai guai culture. Is a phenomenon in Taiwan where workers put snacks of the brand Kwai Kwai brand next to or on top of machines. Workers who do this believe that because the name of the snack Kwai Kwai stands for obedient or well-behaved, it will make the device function without errors. As such, it can be commonly found in myriad places of work in Taiwanese society. A rigid set of best practices has arisen surrounding the proper use of Kwai Kwai snacks, such as using green bags only and ensuring the snacks are not expired. (laughs) The, the thing I have to say about Kwai Kwai culture is it's pretty much something that um, when I, this came up when I first discovered this. I was talking to my boyfriend about it and he pointed out. So, you know, like the, the Van Halen story about the M&Ms, mm, no brown yeah. M&Ms. Mm, mm, he mm. was drawing a parallel between this and that. Like it's a, a conscientiousness filter. Yeah, go ahead and explain that because maybe the listeners haven't. Sure. Yeah. The, the idea is that Van Halen apparently at one point had kind of a reputation as being like this, like prissier high maintenance band, because they would have all of these really stringent requirements for like how their their dressing room and whatnot was set up, including they were supposed to have there was supposed to be a bowl of M and M's with all of the brown M and M's picked out, and if they got to their 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 room and there was not M and M's or there were M and M's but the brown M and M's were still in it, then they would refuse to play, and people were like, "Gosh, that's so like ridiculous of them. The brown M and M's don't make a difference," but the thing is that Van Halen was like one of those bands that has like the major pyrotechnics and wacky stuff going on on the stage that if it goes yeah, wrong, it'll yeah. like kill somebody. And so the thing that they were doing was saying like, okay, we want to see like how detail oriented you are and how much you can like follow even like instructions that you don't necessarily know why it's that way, but it's a very small detail. And we want to make sure you get all of the very small details. Yeah, so we're going to yeah. have a bunch of extra small details that are easy for us to check easier for us to check than the pyrotechnics. And if you can get the M&Ms right, then probably you can get the gouts of flame correct. Right. Yeah. 
And the uh, the one I remember uh, hearing about was that they, uh, you know, they had this uh, contract in place and they went in and they s- saw the uh, bowl of M&Ms with the Telltale uh, Browns still among them. And they like, you know, threw a tantrum and walked out. But apparently um, the venue like uh, was slated to put them on a stage that was not physically capable of holding the weight of their equipment. Oh my god. They would have just walked on there and it would have collapsed. (laughs) Holy shit. (laughs) So the the M&M test worked, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, And so the the thing that that Anton was suggesting was that the Kawhi Kawhi culture is kind of like the brown M&M thing, right? Like, so if you're you're like an engineer or a worker or, or whatever and you go into this sort of place I don't know, it's just admin and you're you're looking at the machines trying to figure out like, is this place good? Are people like maintaining it properly? What might be going wrong? And you see that their their bags of Kwai Kwai are all sorts of different colors and they're all expired. <laughs> <laughs> then you're like, okay, well then they obviously haven't managed to check any of the other things that they were supposed to check. Right, right. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Yeah, that's that is interesting. That's that's interesting actually, like a sort of a a, a like greater point about the role of superstitions in a culture. Like, mm. uh, I wonder if there's something to that in the sort of larger picture of like there's there's rules that exist not because the rule itself actually does you any good, but because you can observe people following it and like draw conclusions about them from that. Yeah, or like possibly like it gives you like a, a bit of a, a buffer, like not even necessarily like in a, a social sense directly. Like maybe you're not inferring something about a specific person, but about an environment, like. Okay, if if these rules aren't being followed that are like the, the basic kind of silly rules, then maybe there's also deeper, more important rules that I wouldn't be able to check as easily that aren't being followed, and maybe I should be on alert for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm just wondering, like, if like rules of like politeness or hospitality might have something to do mm. with this. Oh yeah, mm, like interesting, interesting. You can tell if somebody's going to be a good guest or a good host or like a a good trading partner based on whether they can observe these little formalities. Because if they're able to show that sort of conscientiousness and respect towards you, and even the small things that you uh, and like and any small things that you you can see, then probably they're more likely to do it in the the bigger things that you can't see. That makes sense. Yeah. Are we ready for another topic? Uh, uh, seems that way. Yeah, I think so. Well, then your topic is bug reports and change logs from video games that are just close enough to real life to be surreal. Yeah. So these are like my favorite sorts of games. Like Dwarf Fortress is probably my favorite game. And I have put many, many, many hours into The Sims. And like that sort of simulation game I like. And when you look at like the patch notes or the things that go wrong or the things that people say about the game, if you take them out of context, then they you it is easy to assume that people are tr- are talking about real life or talking about something similar enough to real life, but it doesn't quite make sense. And it makes them hilarious. Yeah. Uh, I run into examples of this like fairly often when I'm playing Stardew Valley, for example, because I tend to like kind of like live blog my play on my Discord server. I'll like chat about like, oh man, you know, like my carrots are coming up good or whatever. Um, yeah. Occasionally I'll say things like, oh shit, I forgot my girlfriend's birthday, so I have to go back in time so I can remember to get her a gift. Uh-huh. <laughs> and people are like, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> oh man, there's been some good ones of that uh, with people playing Crusader Kings. Yeah. Um, and, and I think some, some with Don't Starve too, like 
Uh, but the Crusader Kings one, ones I remember because they're all going to be about like global politics in the medieval era and stuff. And it's like somebody just casually comes in and goes like, you know, my my consort ran off with one of my courtiers or something like that. Right, but, right. But, like a, a slightly more real life plausible th- statement <laughs> than that. And then a bunch of people are like, hang on us. So oh, you're playing Crusader Kings. <laughs> My heir was born with clubfoot, so I need to find a way to kill him off so that I can get the, the successor I want on. And you're like, I'm what? plotting to murder my whoever. Yeah, yeah. Wait, does, does Crusader Kings have patch notes, like publicly, publicly available ones? Because those could be very good. Um, yes. And I believe I have seen hilarious ones. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to Google that. Uh, was was Crusader Kings the one? I can't remember um, whether it was specifically Crusader Kings, but it was a game along those lines. And the patch note I remember seeing was uh, they fixed a bug where you would get lag under certain conditions because a, a bunch of uh, characters in the game uh, were going through a list of all of the other characters in the game to evaluate whether they wanted to castrate them. <laughs> 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 Sorry, I'm spending Sunday going over my list of castrate potentials. <laughs> I'm too busy. All right, so I found a list of some some funny Crusader Kings bug fixes. Excellent, so, good. Um, you you no longer congratulate yourself on a job well done with great works. <laughs> Aw, but I like congratulating <laughs> myself. You should no longer perform a sacrificial ritual on yourself as a Satanist. <laughs> good, good. <laughs> Uh, the Pope should now be more low-key with the torture and drinking features to great works. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> I, just these, these sorts of things are just so f- fun to hear. And like, if you don't know a lot about the game, try to imagine like, what what is the context in which that makes sense? Oh, man. Yeah. The, I, I hear a lot of like Dwarf Fortress ones of these that just make me go, what on earth are you guys even doing? Right. <laughs> I remember one about like, Cut off body parts will no longer like necromantically reanimate themselves. <laughs> yeah, that was actually a really big problem. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> okay, so the thing is that like the way that undead work in Dwarf Fortress is that um the guy who made it was like, okay, but why would I want to like implement like skeletons and zombies separately when I could just create a generic form of undead that reanimates any re- like any body part? Okay. And like or any like, you know, bodily system, perhaps. And the thing is, he has, of course, carefully implemented a a simulation of all the body parts in every creature's body. Right. So any creature that that is that you encounter, like during combat, for example, you could tear somebody's arm off and beat them with it. And like, (laughs) the game knows which creature have had arms, and how much force it takes to tear them off, and how many arms it has. And like it, it tracks all this stuff. So you ha- say you have a yak on your yeah. in your fortress, right? And uh, you you butcher it for yak meat and yak hide or whatever, and you toss the rest in the graveyard or in the garbage heap. And then a necromancer comes to your fort and does his necromantic bullshit to your your, your graveyard or your garbage heap or whatever. Now you have a bunch of undead yak parts, <laughs> and each. Each yak part is its own undead creature. So you have undead yak central nervous system and undead <laughs> yak hair that strangles you and undead yak hooves. 
And and what what are they doing? Do they do things? <laughs> they, they attack you. They, they attack your dwarves. They're dangerous. The hooves, the hooves kick you. Yes. And the thing is that there's like killing blows implemented for like a thing that has a head. It knows that if you cut off the head, it'll deca- decapitate it. Right. But hooves don't have a head. But for a central nervous system. <laughs> right. Like, so it's, it was not immediately obvious quite exactly how you kill a number of these things. And a number <laughs> of them would just keep coming back. <laughs> <laughs> and it, the Dwarf Fortress just has like tons of delightful stuff like this. Like there's a bunch of like systems that are like initially stubbed out. And then he, he goes back and fleshes them out more. So, for example, initially the clothing system was pretty like simple. And then he went and he added in more details about clothing and also more details about like dwarf emotions relating to clothing because the dwarves have a lot of feelings. This is the thing I like about dwarf fortresses. The dwarves have a lot of feelings about their environment. You can go into any dwarf in your fortress at any time and look at their profile and you will see just a list of experiences they've had recently, things they've encountered and how they felt about that. You know, Eurist beheld a lovely waterfall and this is giving him a bonus to his mood or, you know, uh, urist is grumpy from the lack of alcohol. So presumably you could then amputate the um, the memories of seeing a waterfall and, and reanimate them. <laughs> and then the memories of seeing a waterfall will attack him. Because there's no way to kill the memory of a waterfall. Oh man, I, I deeply, deeply yearn for a playable version of Dwarf Fortress. I, 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 I'm so hopeful that they're going to come out with one with a, an actually usable UI because that that's just a major barrier to play. And I love the game, but it took me a while to get past that barrier. But I was dedicated because I, I, yeah. I, I knew that once I got there, I would love it. And I, I was right. I have like tried several times Aww. to play Dwarf Fortress and failed every single time. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Just like not even yeah. not even like failed to succeed at like the carrying out the goals of the game, but just failed to succeed at playing the game. Yeah, no, like the thing is even getting the game to a state where you can play it is very difficult. Like once you have it installed, you have to generate the world and there's a, a yeah. lot of parameters for world generation. And then once you have the world generated, you have to embark to a specific location in the world. And there's a lot of parameters for your embark. And yeah. then once you've done those things, you have dwarves in a place and you have them do dwarf stuff. Yeah. I think at one time I got as far as like embarking somewhere Mm-hmm. And then just completely had no capacity to, like, get any dwarves to do any things. Yeah, that, that is also a trick, is learning how to assign tasks to dwarves. And, like, very little concept of what things I should be getting them to try to do, and what things I might be able to get them to do if I knew how. <laughs> yeah, so but the, the mechanics on this being slightly painful, actually, it kind of gives rise to this other mechanic. So there's there's a manager. You, there's a bunch of different roles you can assign to your dwarves. Different, mm-hmm. like, uh, like they can be the, the person who runs the trade depot, or they can be the executioner, or whatever. They can take on different roles in, in your society. Some of these roles, you do not get to choose who takes them, like the roles of nobility. Some people just ascend to nobility, or sometimes a noble just moves to your fortress, and now you have to deal with this noble having demands and preferences, and it's very inconvenient. But... Some of them you can assign. For example, you can assign a manager. Um, And the manager, you can say, I want these tasks done. And you can say specific things like, you know, I want 30 wooden chairs crafted. And the manager 
his job is to get dwarves to do that. And so you just have to talk to the manager. That, yeah. But, like, it takes a while before you can get to the point where you can assign a manager. Before that, the way that you get dwarves to do things is you enable the task for them. You say that you are allowed to do this thing. And then you, you set tasks out in the world. So, like, you go to a, a crafting station or to a piece of rock that needs to be mined or whatever. And you designate it, like, this crafting station has a queue where one wooden chair needs to be made. Or this rock needs to be carved into a grate or whatever. Um, right, right. And... Your dwarves will, you know, get around to it when they get around to it. The ones who are allowed to do that, assuming that they can reach the place that it's happening. <laughs> and the, you, of course, don't know what's going wrong if your dwarves aren't doing it. You have to figure out for yourselves, like, okay, can my dwarf not reach the shop? Is my dwarf too tired? Is my dwarf too hungry? Is my dwarf having a temper tantrum? Oh, my dwarf's <laughs> leg is broken. Okay. Dwarf Fortress is just full of all of these these little details. I was watching Craig make Glenridden Grove, the 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 tree the fairy treehouse building sim. Fairy um, treehouse building sim, you say? You may be interested in that game as well. I remember watching him and thinking, like, yeah, this is a pretty fun game. And then he added the the fairies, mm-hmm. where instead of just like directly like you, you know you, you want to like cut off this tree limb to like so that the sun can reach the tree the, the branches below it mm-hmm. uh, instead of just doing that yourself you had to tell the fairies to do it and then wait for them to do it yeah and the game got a whole lot less fun <laughs> and that was just like without you know the fairies you know sulking that was just like you just had to wait and the game required a lot of tuning after that to get it to back to where it was fun again yeah for me, I, I am like very, very strongly interested in in the, the fairy treehouse building simulators. <laughs> I, I just dropped the price to ten bucks. Uh, it's on Steam. Uh, yeah, I am likely to go track it down and wishlist it. I'm, I'm sad that the badgers never got into Wittermitten. Yeah, the uh, the working title of the game was Fairies versus Badgers, uh-huh. and we cut the badgers for scope. Oh, so it's just fairies. Tragic. Tragic. It still came out pretty good. I, I really like the the way that the the tree pruning is in the game. I think that that's really like a, a fun consideration to have to take into account when you're you're building your fairy tree house is like how much weight can this bough support and how much light yeah. is it blocking to other things that I care about. Yeah, I was really impressed with that stuff. It, it's it's a really impressive piece of design, I think. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds it. And that's all the time we have here on Topic Lords. All right. It's my, my son is going to wake up any minute now, probably. Sure. There's always more times for more topics later. That's right. Uh, Elena, if this is something that you want, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, Discord, usually. Cool. <laughs> uh, Kappa, if this is something that you want, where can people find you on the, on the internet? I have previously mentioned Glowfic, and uh, Elena has previously mentioned that I very unreliably uh, and occasionally stream things on Twitch. All right. Yeah, we'll put we'll put the the details in the show notes so people can check that out if they want. All right. Thanks so much for being on. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, it was cool. Hi, this is Jim. This is the audio I append to every episode of Topic Lords. Congratulations to our newly anointed lords. If you'd like more people to hear the show, you can tell your friends about it or rate and review us on whatever podcast service you use. You can add content to the Topic Bucket by emailing topicbucket at topiclords.com. 
You can contribute to our Patreon at patreon.com slash topiclords. Patrons get episodes a week early, and you get access to the Topic Lords Discord, where you can discuss topics with all the lords that hang out in there. See you next episode.